the ideas, the leaders, the lives that are shaping Denmark and the world. From Blocks Hub in Copenhagen, Denmark, this is Global Denmark. Welcome back to the Global Denmark podcast, where we explore how thought leaders and innovators are working to create a better Denmark and a better world. What is the true value of diversity? For a long time, we've heard that having diversity or being diverse is the right thing to do from a normative perspective. We've also heard that diversity is good for the bottom line. To get to the bottom of this question, I invited a leading academic, Scott Page, onto the podcast. Scott is an American social scientist and a distinguished university professor of complexity, social science, and management at the University of Michigan. He's been the director for the Center of Study of Complex Systems at the University of Michigan. Page is known for his research on modeling of diversity and complexity in social sciences. Page was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2011. In addition, Page has received several teaching awards from Caltech, Northwestern, and Michigan, including most recently the University of Michigan Distinguished Diversity Scholarship and Engagement Award. He's the author of many books. We dove into his book, The Diversity Bonus, How Great Teams Pay Off in the Knowledge Economy. I came across this book and thought it was a great read and wanted to really dive into what is the ideal compositional diversity and what is diversity bonus all about. And Scott was the right guy to help me on this journey. So without further ado, I bring you Scott Page. All right, we are back. I am on the phone with Scott Page, who is over in Michigan. Scott, how are you doing today? Fantastic. Really great. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to call in. How are things over there, first of all? A lot of people in Denmark are reading about the states and really curious. You know, at the moment, I think the attitude in the states is really kind of unfortunately breaking along political lines. There's a lot of people who are, you know, wearing masks, keeping distance, trying to, you know, stop the spread of the disease. There's other people who just have kind of either given up or have just decided, well, we'll just take what comes and they're not wearing masks. And so depending on which even part of a region you go to, almost at the level of neighborhood, you see very different types of behaviors. Okay. And what about the um, kind of the protest, the Black Lives Matter movement? Is that still very uh, hot over there? You know, the protest has sort of moved from the physical realm. I mean, there's still some cities where that's going on, but there's a lot of activity happening online, like just an enormous number of tweets, papers being sent out, reading lists, book clubs being formed. And so it's moved, I think, from sort of a physical movement to more of an, an intellectual thinking movement, which is great. And I think the challenge here is going to be how does the how do the sort of key players in this and also how does the society generally react what do we do i mean i think there's a real cause for action that right now we're messaging you know phase right right and um, you know we're toppling down statues we're renaming schools we're removing plaques from all sorts of places but we're not taking any actions at the moment that will lead to the sort of structural changes that need to be put in place. Okay. And that will have to be both at the federal and state level politically? That'll have to happen, I think, at three levels. Our political system really operates um, kind of at local regional levels, kind of, you know, cities, counties, then at states, then at the national level. And I think that we are fairly segregated as a society. And so that's going to mean that the implementation 
of some of these policies is going to happen all the way down at the local level. Okay. It's going to be really interesting to see what emerges the next six to 12 months here. Yeah, also, <laughs> also in terms yeah. of the, the upcoming election, I know you're over in uh, Michigan and you know a lot of people are saying Michigan could be crucial for the upcoming election. What's the mood on the ground there? Is there a feeling that uh, Biden or Trump are going to take Michigan? Well, you know, right now, Biden has some say nine to 12 percent lead in Michigan, but people thought Clinton had a big lead as well. So one doesn't know. I think the thing that is allowing Biden to coast downhill a little bit is our senator, I'm sorry, governor, correction, Whitmer, had a really strong lockdown after we had sort of a very strong initial wave in Detroit. And she took a lot of heat from that, from a small percentage of people. But it has worked so well that, um, you know, her approval ratings are through the roof. So we have a governor and two senators who are Democrats who used to have exceptionally high approval ratings. And so there's a sense in which Trump's swimming upstream. Okay. You know, whereas before, when Trump won last time, there was a Republican governor and, you know, this who is, you know, pretty popular and there wasn't, and I don't think the senators were as popular as they are now. Okay. So he could kind of ride, ride that wave. Yeah. I, mean, I think Biden is just going to sit back. The weird thing about being in Michigan, you know, because we have an electoral college, so it comes down to winning at the state level. I used to live in California and California always goes democratic. You wouldn't even know there's a presidential election. Whereas if you're in Michigan, yeah. you think there's one even three years away from the election. You think there's an election. Yes. We're being, we're being campaigned. I mean, you really have a sense you're living in a democracy when you're here. Holy cow. I grew up in Pennsylvania, so those could very similar. Privilege to be a swing state. You get a lot of attention. That's right. Well, we're not here to talk politics in that regard today, but um, yeah. I wanted to kind of dive in. We're looking at diversity and inclusion uh, issues with relative on the macro level to, to Denmark and also best practices out there in the world. And I know you wrote a, a great book called The Diversity Bonus, How Great Teams Pay Off in the Knowledge Economy. And I thought that's extremely relevant right now as well. And uh, I wanted to get you on to talk about it and kind of have you map out what are diversity bonuses and what are we talking about here? Absolutely. So here's the main idea. As we move from a sort of manufacturing economy, you know, farming economy to knowledge economy over the last 50 years, 100 years, you know, this is true in Europe and the United States. You've basically become knowledge workers as opposed to physical workers. Right. Like I'm guessing Denmark probably has, you know, what, 10% of people in manufacturing where 60 years ago is probably 50%. Yeah. What happens is in something like manufacturing, Diversity and inclusion policies are really based on normative ideals, which is kind of what the Black Lives Matter has been based on in the United States and that, you know, fairness, like giving everybody equal opportunity. Mm -hmm. But if I replace a worker on an assembly line, a white person with an African-American person or a man with a woman, you know, all that really matters is how does that person work on the line? It's really kind of an additive process. So the example I always give when I'm explaining this to public audiences is imagine you're hiring someone to chop down trees that person's value is how many trees they chop down, and that's how much they contribute to the firm. Nothing sort of special, interesting happens. But suppose I've got people trying to design an algorithm for hiring or working on you know, wind turbines or something like that, and mm -hmm. I think a lot of those in Denmark. When you add someone to the team, you want someone who's smart, but the thing is, is that the sort of productivity of the two of them right, depends on differences in what they know and how they think. So a very simple example is I did a retreat with Expedia in London a few months ago, and almost I guess almost a year ago. One of the things we we're doing is thinking of, okay, how do you measure creativity? And there's this thing called the alternative uses test, where you sort of give someone an idea like a thing, like a brick, and you say, how many uses can you think of for a brick 
in five minutes. Your creativity is the number of things you can think of. So with Expedia, the question we had is, suppose you're stuck with 10,000 plastic straws or 10,000 boxes of plastic straws, right? Because now plastic straws are the devil's handmaiden. Right. Right. And um, that inventory is going to sit there. Yeah. That's, and so you got to think of something to do with these things. And, you know, somebody had like five minutes and the most any one person thought of was 31. Somebody else thought of 20, all the way down to one person only thought of five. So your ability in this case is measured by psychologists is how many things you thought of or alternatively, how many categories of things you thought of. Okay. Right? You know, so it could be you thought of like things for kids or, you know, protecting surfaces or something like that. Well, then what we did is we added up one group of 15 people together. They had 113. And so and here's where you see like why both sort of ability and diversity matters. Your ability is how many ideas you have. Yes. But, you know, you grew up in Pennsylvania. I grew up in Michigan. If you have 20 ideas and I have 20 ideas, together we have 20 ideas, <laughs> right? There's no right. diversity bonus. You know, when you go to Denmark and suddenly you ask people in Denmark if they have ideas, you know, somebody from Denmark may have only 14 ideas and you'd be like, oh, look, Americans are smarter than the Danes or something like that. Or if they have 24 ideas, they would say, oh, we're smarter than the Americans. What you care about, though, is how many ideas you have in combination. So when you add your 20 and the 24 from the person in Denmark, how many more do you get than the max? Do you get 27? Do you get 31? And we can talk through some other examples in a second. But when you yeah. think about creativity, the value of a team depends on, you know, kind of the average ability, that the maximum ability of someone on that team. But then also there's a bonus that comes from people thinking about different things. OK, yes. here's another context. Let's take prediction. So. And let me step back just for one second. So one of the things that's so central to what I'm trying to figure out in my research is this, is that problems are harder than our capacity. The tasks before us, right, managing these really complicated, you know, really complex organizations, you know, creating fair and just societies, managing at a country level and globally the planet, you know, creating a sustainable economy. Mm -hmm. These are huge problems that far outstrip you know, right now, the search for a vaccine for COVID far outstripped the abilities of any one person. Right. So this is going to have to be done by teams and groups. So the challenge then is how do you produce collective intelligence, right? How do you create teams and groups that are more effective than individuals? How does that work? You could say, well, it depends on ability and it depends on thinking different or something. That doesn't get you anywhere because you don't, you don't understand the mechanism. Right. So what you have to do is you've got to say, OK, let's think of what That's the nice nature of the task is. So when you think about the nature of the task, okay, so we see in creativity, you can sort of think of it as like each person is a set and our collective value is the union of those sets. And so the more different the sets of things we think of, the better we do. And so you can see why there's a real, so if I have two sets and I have them overlapping, as I make them overlap less, as I make them more diverse, I get this kind of bonus. I get, I get more answers. So let's think of this in the context of a COVID vaccine. You want creativity because you want a whole bunch of things that you could possibly try. You just want a lot of ideas on the table. Yes. Once those ideas are on the table, you've got to predict which are the ones that we should sort of, you know, put our resources behind. So now let's think about the act of predicting. And this is what's kind of wild. Let's suppose I'm making a just a binary prediction. Like, is this going to is this something we should try or something we shouldn't try? If you have the same model as me, if we have 11 people all trained in the same way, who all think about things in the same way, all of the same life experiences, all worked for the same firm the whole time, we're likely to think really similarly. So we're going to get a vote that's like, you know, if there's seven of us on the committee, seven, zero in favor of this one, zero, seven in favor of the other. Yeah. Right. So instead, what you want is you want people who 
think about the world and have very different models. So my most recent book is called The Model Thinker, which talks about how you go from sort of like these deep models to, you know, making predictions and trying to mm-hmm. solve things. And so what happens is if you have a very different model than I have, you and I are likely to sort of predict in different ways. Well, now there's a famous term called the Condorcet jury theorems. If it were the case that our predictions were independent, you know, you're right 60% of the time and I'm right 60% of the time and somebody else is right 60% of the time, but there's no correlation between your prediction and my prediction, yeah. right? Then the crowd's going to be a lot smarter, right? Because, you know, it'd be unlikely that all three of us would be, you know, that most of the time, you know, at least two of the three of us will be right or three of all three of us will be right. But now let's move it to numerical predictions because here's where you see the bonus sort of more clearly. Okay. We're thinking of a new product. We're trying to think about, okay, let's think about the market, potential market size here. I mean, what size plant we want to build. So we want a decent prediction on the size of the market. So there's a, a simple theorem you can write down that's in the book called the diversity prediction theorem that says the following. Take the average of our predictions. So suppose you say 70,000 units, I say 90,000 units, and somebody else, the third person on our team says 110,000 units, or says 100,000 units. So we average those and we get like 87,000. So we can call that the crowd's prediction. What's interesting is here's the theorem that you can show. The error of the crowd's prediction. So take the crowd's prediction, which is 87,000, minus whatever the true value ends up being. So after the fact, we'll know the answer. If you try and set those equal, it's not true. You'll find that the crowd's error is always smaller than the average error. And the about by which it is smaller is the diversity of our predictions. Like, so how far our predictions differ from the mean. Now, here's the logic. Let's just suppose there's two of it. We're predicting how many eggs are in a dozen. So there's obviously 12, right? But suppose you're off by six and I'm off by six. If we both say 18, then the crowd says 18 and the crowd is just as accurate as the two of us, Mm -hmm. right? But if you say 18 and I say six, then when you average us, you get 12 and the crowd gets it exactly right. So the crowd is off by zero, but we're both off by six. Okay. Yeah. And so in the diversity six. But here's what's then super, super fascinating. What's really going on is just that if we have different models of the world, if we think about the situation differently, sometimes one of us is going to be above and the other is going to be below the Mm -hmm. true value. And so when that happens, we end up being more accurate. If we're both above or we're both below, then the crowd's kind of equally good as we would be on average. Suppose you have like seven people picking. It's almost inconceivable that all seven would go in the same direction, above or below. And even if they did, the crowd's still going to be as accurate as the average person. But as long as some people are below and some people are above, the crowd's going to be a lot more accurate. So Jim Sirwicky wrote this book called The Wisdom of Crowds, and he has a whole bunch of examples of like where crowds got things right. Now, to make a book called The Wisdom of Crowds, this is what we call selection bias, Mm -hmm. it has to be the case that the crowd was right, right? So that means the crowd error is going to be really small. So for the crowd to be right, the crowd error has got to be small. To make the book, it's got to be kind of an amazing case. So that means the average error has got to be pretty big. His conclusion in the book is when you see wise crowd, they're diverse. But what's so amazing about this book, his book came out like over a decade ago, the same time as I wrote an earlier book called The Difference, which is kind of a mathematical version of the diversity bonus. And Jim and I would go give talks at the same places. And he would say he would tell his these amazing stories, like people guessing the weight of a steer or, you know, stock market predictions, things like this. And then he'd say, when you look, these crowds, the people in these teams, these crowds are always diverse in terms of like training, background, experience, that sort of thing. And then I'd get up and I'd say, look, here's a mathematical equation. We know the predictions have to be diverse. And that's the diversity bonus. The amount by which the crowd is more accurate than the average person is the diversity. And 
where that diversity comes from is thinking about the world in different ways. And where thinking about the world in different ways comes from is identity experiences, those sorts of stuff. Okay, so fundamentally, then, what you're trying to do is identify different creative potentialities that are from these life experiences that give a cognitive diversity. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. You know, another example I give all the time, like if I'm picking a four by 100 meter um, freestyle relay team, I can just line people up in the pool and pick the four fastest people. There's no diversity bonus there, right? No, no. It doesn't happen. But if I'm picking, you know, four people to help design products or launch a marketing campaign or something like that, then I have to think about people not as sort of like, you know, I always say toolbox is not measuring sticks. There's a tendency to like sort of evaluate people by a bunch of criteria and then kind of add them up and give each person a score and say, mm. she's an 87, he's an 83. Yeah. But instead, you want to think about what are all the tools in this person's toolbox? And what are all the ways they have of seeing a problem? Let me give another sort of two examples that seem completely unrelated that fit this really nicely. So I did a bunch of work with ABI, which is a giant brewer, right? I think they're the world's yeah. largest brewer. And then a bunch of stuff with the U.S. intelligence community. In that case, I think that actually my non-disclosure agreement with ABI is stricter than the one with uh, <laughs> But uh, I can tell a similar story in each in that beer, as people in Denmark know as well as anyone, has different meanings in different cultures, how it's drunk, the situations where people drink it, you know, where yeah. they drink it, all sorts of stuff, right? So if you're going to run ABI and you're going to think about how do we market beer in all these different places of the world, everything even at the level of packaging to production, everything about it, you have to understand 150 local, you know, national cultures and maybe a thousand local cultures. Yes. If you really want to be effective at marketing beer, you know, so I was sitting in the office of, uh, been doing stuff at ABI. I'm sitting at the office of someone in the the U.S. intelligence community who's got one of those desks with like the map of the world on it right. and then the like, glass plate over it. I'm thinking like, thank goodness there's not tanks on there. You know, 50 years ago, there'd have been tanks on that movie. Exactly. exactly. And, you know, and I said, so, wow, so the U.S. is incredibly diverse. I said, so if I put my finger on one of these countries, do you have someone in-house who grew up in that country? And he said, yeah, pretty much. Right. And I'm like, how big of an advantage is that? And he just got a huge smile on his face. Mm. And he said, look, you know, if you say, OK, you know, we've got this situation in Turkey in this you know, remote region, you're going to have people who said, oh, I've had Turkish coffee. You know, if you're looking at like, you know, some other country's intelligence community or, you know, I once you know, spent two hours at the Istanbul airport with a flight delay. But, you know, we have five, ten people who grew up in Turkey in our intelligence community. And that just gives us a richness, you know, probably more than that, right? But that gives us just a richness of interpretation and understanding when something like this comes up. Where do you see major differentiation in terms of cognitive diversity? I mean, is it more important, your gender, the country you're brought up in, the industry you're in? Do you see any patterns there? Just a quick backstory. I was a mathematician who got interested in game theory and then it is sort of, sort of like mechanism design. Like how do you construct market-based institutions and organizational structures and so I was just fascinated by this question of like, you know, how do you, how do firms work? How does the economy work? So, and I was writing them these mathematical models showing that, wow, the models we have of the economy that we're teaching our undergraduates are like about making aircraft with diminishing marginal returns and production, right? Your listeners are probably like getting hives on their arms remembering, <laughs> you know, drawing total cost curves in yeah. you know, college. And I'm yes. sitting there thinking like, this doesn't make any sense. Most people in Denmark at the moment are not like, you know, producing stuff. They're sitting around, they're producing knowledge, they're thinking. And so I started thinking about, okay, what makes, what does a theory of like thinking teams look like? And then immediately yeah. 
you start getting all these results about diversity. Then I kind of got dragged into literally kind of going out on the road and talking to places like Google and Yahoo and the CIA about what I was finding. And at the time, because I'm not, you know, I was not an ethnographer, not a sociologist. I hadn't, it was purely chalk on chalkboard, ink on paper was how I thought about this. But now I spent 20 years out there and I can tell you like, this is where great leaders, really strategic thinkers get a massive competitive advantage because where it matters and which one matters is entirely problem dependent. And you've got to think about it in deep ways. So let me give an example. Yeah. IPG, big advertising firm, right? Mm -hmm. If you're going to throw an ad out in a national ad campaign, basic identity diversity matters a ton. In fact, a number of firms before they send an ad out will show it to everyone in the office. Break down identity diversity real quick for our audience. So So identity, what we mean by identity diversity would be like age, gender, race, religion, sexual orientation, cultural ethnicity, physical disabilities, those sorts of things. Okay. So what people generally think about when they talk diversity. Yeah, I think Yeah, you can think of the sort of um, the part of the iceberg that's above the water, right, (laughs) is one metaphor people use, right? And I think most people are, I think the part of the iceberg below the water is a lot richer and more meaningful than the Mm -hmm. part above, but they're related, right? Because one of the things I also found fascinating is like, as I sort of began this journey into trying to figure this out more, you go to places like Yahoo, Google, Netflix, and they can tell you, Amazon, right, that who you are from an identity characteristic determines the websites you visit. I mean, not determines, but correlates with the websites you visit, the books you buy, the movies you rent, right? The news you consume. Okay. And so I, it's not essential. It's not the fact that like if someone grows up an African-American woman in the United States and I grew up a white, let's say Cleveland, and I grew up a white guy in rural Michigan, there's nothing sort of genetic that makes us read different news or buy no. different books or anything like that. But the thing is, the cultures we grew up in, the communities, how we see ourselves, how the world experiences us and how we experience the world leads to a lot of sort of self-reinforcing knowledge bases, perspectives, ways of thinking, that sort of stuff. So if I'm doing an advertising campaign, you know, it's got people in it or doesn't have certain sets of people in it everybody's going to have sort of an identity-based perception of how that ad makes them feel. Mm-hmm. And one of the, also one of the things you want to have is you don't want to run any sort of ad where any one group is then going to just, you know, go crazy on the internet for good reason because you've done something offensive. Right? Yeah, you've done reputational damage there. You don't want that. Yeah. And so one thing you can think about there is think of each person having a filter that says this is kind of like inappropriate. Your filters, your inappropriateness filter is really tied to identity, mm. right? It's absolutely mm. tied to identity. Mm. But let's take another example, though. Let's think about, like, you know, who do you hire? So one of the things I talk about in the diversity bonus book is an experiment I've done with undergrads and some corporate audiences to say, you're doing a movie. The last minute Tom Hanks pulls out. Who do you replace him with? And what's fascinating is if you ask a room of white guys, they only mention white guys. Okay. <laughs> if, you, if you have – it's like – if you have, but if you have women in the room, pretty quickly a woman will say Meryl Streep. And the reason they say Meryl Streep or Charlize Theron is that Meryl Streep can play anything, she, right? She's very <laughs> good. Yeah. Right. She's really good, right? Um, you know, and so – but men don't – when you think about it. And then the other thing is if you have African-Americans in the room, they'll say Denzel Washington pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And as I say in the book, like Denzel Washington and Tom Hanks are incredibly similar actors. Yeah. So there's a wonderful turn of phrase by the um, that Stuart Kaufman came up with and Stephen Johnson, the writer, popularized called adjacent possible. So if okay. you think about staffing or if you're thinking about, you know, some new business area to move into or something like that, 
Yeah. The adjacent possible is the set of things you think of as like the current thing, right? So who's like Tom Hanks? Yes. So one of the questions then you want to ask, let's get, we're getting back to sort of what kind of diversity matters, is in a particular context, what is the adjacent possible? So if we're thinking about, you know, hiring someone, then adjacent possible would be what connections does someone have? What industries has someone worked in? Right. If we're thinking about entering a new line of business, someone's adjacent possible again is going to be then you're going to be looking for diversity of work experience, things like that, because it's going to matter a lot. Right. Mm -hmm. You also might want a lot of age diversity because they're going to have a better sense of kind of what's going on. Right. Let's mm -hmm. suppose, though, you're I mean, let's go back to designing something. I'm in Detroit. So we design a lot of cars. I guess there you design a lot of windmills. But like when right. you think about, OK, cars are becoming much more of a sort of information good as opposed to a transportation good. Should Ford hire someone from Disney? Mm. BlackRock, which is the, you know, manages like six trillion dollars. Go look at their senior leadership team and you'll see a guy named Frank Cooper. He worked for Motown. <laughs> and you're like, wait a okay. minute. What what is going on here? Then you start thinking three steps through and you realize like, OK, in China and this may be true in Denmark as well now, but all banking is done by phone. Mm -hmm. Right. In the U.S., mm -hmm. like I pay with money and my son will sometimes my younger son will sometimes say, what are these beads you are using? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? I saw that at our museum trip. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, and so a set of financial services firms, I mean, you know, big banks are aware that like at some point the U S is going to go app based, right. For money. And what do bankers in New York do about designing apps? Nothing. What is someone who's had a whole bunch of experience in Hollywood understand right and in marketing understand and in consumer goods understand how to construct apps right and so and and, and how to how to rebrand things and how to roll out a new product right so what is what does motown do what does hollywood do every three months you know every three days they're rolling out new product right and so you need someone with that expertise on board okay so it's really and having so, a keen understanding of the the issue the problem or the the issue of which you want to have solved. Is that correct? Yeah, it's right. Absolutely. So you could be, you know, so being smart, there's a lot of smart people out there, but you know, it's, so in that case, it's really having a, a tool set to understand in some sense, you know, process and protocol, right. Or, you know, suppose you're going to um, like, you know, a friend of mine started a, one of my former students started a company making shirts and they're doing it entirely online. And then suddenly they decided to like, you know, do some pop-up stores and then create stores. But they had they built up experience in sort of supply chain management and web-based marketing and, you know, really smart young entrepreneurs. But that doesn't necessarily give you any skills, mm -hmm. right, for setting up a and running and managing a store and thinking about like, so there's a question then of like, where do you open the store? Well, here you need a lot of diversity because you need to know. Who's your market? And then you need to have people who understand different cities. And so you want to sit down. And this is where I think it becomes really fun about. And I'm sure this is true in general with your work is you try to have sets of advisors or, you know, business roundtable groups or communities of people to interact with just to sort of get their ideas. And when you talk to, you know, accomplished, you know, motivated people who are trying to make the world better, they just they know so much interesting stuff. Right. <laughs> And it yes. makes you it makes you smarter. One of the things that I find so fascinating in this in this space is that people who you know are presidents of universities or people like Bill Gates or you know big, you know really high people in the government 
they're briefed all the time in very high levels about, you know, the stuff that people have decided is important for them to know. That's almost like a, a diversity, you know, input that they're getting, right? Mm -hmm. Like, here's all the different ways of thinking about this. Whereas the rest of us are kind of stuck with this fire hose called the Internet. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> one of my friends goes, we joke about it. It's a fire hose. It's a hairball. It's a fire hose of hairball. You know, it's just like and and so we don't have anybody cultivating. And so I think one of the, the real challenge here is there's too much information. And yeah. so what you need is you need to strategically sit down and think about what are the what sorts of knowledge, what sorts of understanding, what sorts of tools would really be useful here and then have those people sifting through that hairball. So, again, two more yeah. examples. And we um, like in, in neuroscience, there's like now 70,000 papers written a year. So a friend of mine's hiring a postdoc in neuroscience. The year before, he'd hired someone fantastic from a, you know, a leading school. That same lab had another person coming out. And the person said, hey, I've got, you know, the person runs that lab. said, hey, I've got another person just as good as the woman you hired last year. Yeah. And my friend is like, that's the last person I'm going to hire. <laughs> you know, no, because a good lab might read yeah. 200 papers a year. So these two people, if they're in the same lab, you know, the thousand papers one person knows, the other person knows 800 of them, mm -hmm. right? Well, during the last five years, there's been 350,000 papers read, written. Why would you want someone who knows the same 800 as the person you just hired? Yeah, and that right? goes back to your point on, you know, maximizing that creative input, right? Yeah. And so and then the other thing that's really fascinating, but this is where training comes in. This kind of blows me away. I was down giving a talk at NASA and they're talking about talking about hiring engineers. And does it make sense to hire engineers from different schools? So we just said, well, let's look. And so we looked at fluid dynamics, which you would think would be like, OK, can't get more kind of basic than that. Mm -hmm. And we pulled up the syllabus from fluid dynamics at MIT, University of Illinois and I think Berkeley. And for advanced fluid dynamics, there was like 70 percent overlap in the courses. That's okay. it. That's it. Okay. So you'd be nuts. You'd be nuts to hire two people from Illinois. Yeah, you're missing you out. One from Illinois. Yeah. yeah. That's a diversity bonus down the drain right there. Right. Because Illinois, you, you learn about water rolling over rocks because there's a lot of glacial streams sure. in Illinois. And That's at what... MIT, you learn about propellers because they in the water because they feel like learning about propellers helps you understand wind turbines. I mean, actually, you learn about windmills in fluid dynamics. And you're joking, like, has anybody told MIT windmills are above the ground? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so then I asked someone from MIT about that. And they were like, no, 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 because propellers are a lot harder to understand than windmills because of the fluid dynamics. So first you learn windmills. And so then you realize, like, wow, MIT people understand propellers totally differently. You know, they think of them as windmills in the water, whereas that wouldn't even occur to someone probably from Illinois. So. Yeah. Again, for technical stuff, where you go to school matters a lot. Now, Scott, we can see then there's a rational case for um, maximizing diversity to create these bonuses. But there are these cognitive biases, for example, affinity bias, um, mm -hmm. where, where we simply hire people that kind of remind remind us uh, of ourselves and these things. How much how much of a mitigating factor are these biases contra the rational case that you're laying forward here? So, you know, the, just to be, to be super clear, so it's not, you're not always trying to like necessarily, mac, what you want to do is you want to sort of like balance out, you know, having the right, right, maybe the wrong, having like 
a really good level of diversity where people can still sort of communicate with one another and understand what people are saying, right? Because, you know, there's, when you think about what an organization is doing, you have to build a, you know, communication and agreement on mission and those things matter a lot, right? So, um, so there's always going to be a balance in terms of the amount of diversity you want. I think what becomes problematic when you think about um, bringing in people are like you are, are two things. One is, is that you tend to think that if, if you've made it to the position where you're like hiring people, you've been successful. And so yeah. it's hard not to think that other people who think like you are going to be successful. Like I was, I was talking to one person who was CEO. I said, how do you get this job? He said, I'm going to change the names of the schools here and things. Um, he said, well, you know, it's funny. I said, you know, I went to Berkeley undergrad and got my MBA at Michigan and my wife went to Dartmouth. And uh, I was working for this big consulting company. I met with the CEO and he went undergrad at Berkeley and got his MBA at Michigan and his wife yeah. went to Dartmouth. Yeah. And he was yeah. like, wow, you should come work here. Yeah. And it was because, and, you know, I'm dumbfounded, <laughs> right? But then yeah. you realize the person who's searching for his replacement built the company and doesn't want to hand it over to someone who isn't like himself. So. Right. It's tribalistic so almost. Yeah. And so I think that and and one of the one of the really fascinating things is let's go back to the notion of adjacent possible. Yep. If you hand the company off, if you hand the university off to people different from yourself, they're likely to do and see different opportunities that you would have seen and they're likely to take something in a different direction. Yes. And that's good because you know, take a I'm a complex system scholar, like complexity requires constant adaptation, innovation, change, right? You've got to keep moving and doing new things. And I think it, I think that it's very difficult for someone sometimes to think about handing over the reins to someone who isn't like them. So some of this has to do with power. And then I think that implicit yeah. bias stuff, you know, also comes in that if I'm just like you, my comfort level is going to be a lot higher. I don't, I'm not a fan of the word safety because I think that it it starts becoming a self-fulfilling word. So okay. I prefer the word I prefer the word comfort, right? So if I feel really comfortable and secure and validated in a place, I'm going to share my ideas. So if I'm like, if I look like everyone in a place, I'm going to feel comfortable and safe and validated and secure and everything, right? And so I'm more likely to just dive right in. If yeah. I'm very different from someone else, and if I have novel ideas because I'm different, you know, I went to a different school, a different gender, I'm you know, different race or culture or something, then I might be less willing to share. And then you, ironically, then you sometimes get less of the bonus, right? And Absolutely. so one of the places, so one of the places where you get this, so I think the the bias stuff works both ways. Because right? that, that ties into the, in, the inclusion aspect of, right? Because what we're talking about in diversity is compositional. Right. right? And how do you then, how do, with all those inputs, how do you then leverage that maximum diversity compositional Potential. Is that right? Yeah, and, right. Exactly. And one, you know, it's a, I joked that like the, my life has gone from sports metaphors. My dad was a football and basketball track coach to cooking metaphors. Okay. <laughs> That's how you cooking metaphor. No, right. So when you think about diversity, like it's, it's absolutely the case that foods with more ingredients are kind of more interesting than foods with a single ingredient, right? So diversity gives bonuses, right? You put, um, you know, if we were making some smoked salmon with honey and chili peppers on it, right? Smoked salmon with honey is good. Smoked salmon with chili peppers is just okay, but smoked salmon with honey and chili peppers is fantastic. All right. Um, you know, so there's the bonus. But the thing is, is that 
So you can think about getting the right mix of ingredients is compositional, right? You need that. But then with cooking, there's a process and an order in which you allow each of those ingredients to sort of really make itself work, right? Like I was trying to figure out how to make an iced coffee the other day and fail, fail, fail. And I thought, oh, there's this thing called the internet that'll probably teach me how to do this. <laughs> yeah, I've heard of that. And yeah. it turns out like you put the sugar in the cup and then you dump the, have the espresso pour into the sugar so the sugar gets completely dissolved. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't, then when you put the colder stuff in, the sugar is going to granulate. So you need to dissolve the sugar in the espresso. Then you add the milk, but then you get kind of a lukewarm thing. And then you kind of pour that over ice a couple of times and then you put the ice in it. Right. But if you put it right in ice, then the, it melts and it gets watery. So you kind of pour it through ice and then put the ice in. Okay. And it's fantastic. So there's the process allowing each part to write, you know, to sort of work. Right. Well, the same is true with these teams. Right. You've got to think about like, you know, what people's personality style is. You've got to think about, you know, what they're what skills they're bringing to the table. So you can't just say, OK, I've got six diverse people. Let's put you in a room. Go for it. Because one of the things that, again, this isn't my area of study in terms of I don't do this style of work. But um, if you look across hundreds, Catherine Phillips looked at hundreds of studies of diverse teams and um, one of the things you see is that initially diverse teams don't do as well as homogeneous teams. They do a little bit worse. But over time, they end up doing, on average, a little bit better. With, but what's fascinating is there's some that do a lot worse, and then there's most do quite a bit better. <laughs> so, so the average okay. is a little bit better. But no, but it's hard to have a train wreck um, with a bunch of you know homogeneous people in terms of like group dysfunction, yes. right? But it is easy with a homogeneous team to do nefarious things, right? Because you're much more likely to sort of cheat and lie, things like that. Um, you know, the Volkswagen case is often yeah, trotted out as an example. Now, are you talking about homogeneous in terms of the cognitive diversity or the identity diversity or both? Everything, right? So if you have a, I mean, it's, you've really got to, you know, ratchet it up. Like if, if I take a group that all went to the same school, all the same age, all studied economics or all studied finance or all studied marketing or, you know, architecture under the same people, they're going to get you a B plus right away. So, so there's, yeah. there's great work on, um, this is work by Brian Uzi and Ben Jones at Northwestern. Take every paper ever published, right? Take every academic paper ever published, like 24 million. And what you see is teams and if, uh, papers are influential if they get, get like more a hundred citations. So, Team, team written papers are like four and a half times as likely to hit this mark than individual papers. Okay. But if you unpack it and say, what drives this? What's totally fascinating is um, teams only give you a little bit of a bonus, you know, just having more people. But what really helps is two things. One is, is if the people have published a lot of papers in the past, that helps. Well, that's kind of like ability, which is what all of us think, Right. right. So give that a box that sort of makes you like, you know, kind of one unit better. Then there's another box that the exact same size as that box, which is a diversity bonus, which basically what they do is this. They say, look at the papers that are cited in the references. If you are you citing things together that haven't been cited in the past. So there's famous work in behavioral economics by Kahneman and Tversky, some of the early stuff that was studying psychology and economics. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And now there's stuff studying like neuroscience and economics or something. Right. Yes. Or there's people doing. Um, in fact, I'm working on a project now on collective intelligence and architecture. Right. So anything we write will be highly diverse. The diversity bonus is the same size as the ability bonus across all these papers. Like so it matters that people who've written who write stuff that get lots of citations, but it matters just as much that the team is like citing stuff together that doesn't get cited much. But then there's a third box that's 
the size of the other two boxes added together. <laughs> and that box okay. is if you have if you have each of the other two boxes. So here's the way to think about where the four times better comes from. One time better from having ability, one time better if you've got diversity. But if you have both ability and diversity, you get the ability bonus, the diversity bonus, and then a double bonus, which is kind of the ability and diversity bonus. Because, And then if you look at the papers, and this is kind of slightly depressing, right? If you take people who really don't publish, take people who have kind of like negative ability in the sense that their stuff doesn't get citations yeah. at all, and you make diverse groups, they actually do worse. Okay. So, I mean, so the point is, you, and again, this was why I always have to watch myself because I've done a bunch of stuff at NASA and I always like will say, it's not rocket science or the whole world <laughs> but, um, but it's not rocket science. Like, on a really hard problem that's high dimensional that involves lots of dimensions, right? I mean, it's just a yeah. lot of issues. You need smart people and you need people who are diverse. You know, it's right? funny, Scott, when, when I'm hearing all of this, it, it just is so... Um, so far from the average discussion regarding diversity as this normative process, uh, achieving a quota and all yeah. the um, kind of side conversations that emerge from that. I mean, how, how can how can what we're talking about here be so distant from? <laughs> these I, companies? You know, I don't know. And, you know, it's funny, my my wife um, studies federalism. Right. And so right. she knows all these things, about federalism, things like that. And somebody, I think, once said to one of my subs, like, what do your parents do? He was like, my mom is like an expert in federalism. And she talks about how you build robust federations and all this stuff. And they said, what does your dad do? And he said, oh, he says obvious things to really smart people. <laughs> <laughs> That's the key to life. So. <laughs> no, it's true, though. I mean, I, I'm dumbfounded as well, because it is the case that most of this stuff is couched in normative terms, right? I mean, most of this stuff, most diversity inclusion policies, it's like right thing to do, right thing to do, right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Um, yeah, and the reality is that, especially if you're producing products, designing policies, coming up with solutions that are going to affect a diverse world, like if you're in Denmark and you're producing products for the world, you need to understand that world in some way, right? Yes in a lot of ways. And, and so I think that the one, one argument that I think really resonates well with people is think of a city and think of a rural area. What makes a city amazing? What makes a city amazing is, you know, as, as I saw, um, I think it was Copenhagen's airport, but it might've been chicken tikka masala tacos. You know, the okay. other day. Right. So it turns out chicken tikka masala isn't even an Indian dish. It's a British riff on Indian food. And then you put it in a taco. Right. right. Um, you know, so the thing is, and in some sense, that's what makes cities so amazing is you've had just ideas and products and artifacts and architectural designs from all over the world yeah. come into cities and get combined in interesting ways. And so um, there's a great paper. There's great papers on sort of like economic growth. Marty, uh, Marty Weinstein has this great book on sort of an endogenous theory of growth that is based on recombination. So he calls it, you know, kind of recombinant growth. And George Akerlof, who won a Nobel Prize, said, you know, if that were true, if like growth came from putting things together, we'd have chicken flavored ice cream. Right. Mm, mm. And and Weinstein had two comebacks. One was that, um, you know, if you read the paper carefully for the number of combinations is astronomical. And what brilliant, you know, so you, 
so the brilliance comes down is having filters to figure out which ones are worthwhile. Yeah. And the second point is, is that chicken flavored ice cream sells really, really well. Just go to the, uh, it's for dogs, go to any pet store and you see um, like <laughs> coolers right. full of chicken flavored <laughs> <right>. ice cream. <laughs> they can't get enough of that. <laughs> it's true. It's absolutely true. And so Akerlof is just late to the game on the chicken flavored That's ice right. cream. Wake up. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, so George has his Nobel Prize, but somebody else is living in a much bigger house who sold chicken flavored ice cream. <laughs> uh, Scott, Scott, I want to I want to kind of break this down. So yeah. the we we've had this the the normative case that oh diversity is the right thing to right. do. And then you yep. know have these quotas. People look at data. They see okay, right. we need to we need to get the numbers up for um, yeah. this identity group. Um, what, what's the business case though? Is it, is it because yeah. that, uh, innovation is being generated here? So just quickly going back, cause I think we, I probably didn't do this justice, but I think the reason why you had a normative case and now you have the more of the case that I'm trying to make is because of the nature of work has changed. If work, when the civil rights movement began in the United States, um, it was a time when it was like the peak of manufacturing. You know, 40 percent of jobs were manufacturing. So there really wasn't we, you know, we, there really wasn't the sort of diversity bonus case. So we didn't think about it that way. Right. Um, and so it was natural to think of it from purely normative terms. And and the normative case is obviously there. So when you think about like, OK, you know, do you go with quotas or how do you think about, um, you know, how do you think about what policies should be put in play? Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, this this becomes complicated, and here's why. I think that um, we know for these diverse groups to function well, you need to have diversity in the room. People have to feel validated and secure, and they have to be really motivated because these are hard these are hard problems. I mean, innovation, breakthroughs, new business ideas are hard, so you need real sense of mission. So I call this sort of the Molex NASA problem. So you go to NASA, they don't have any motivation problems. Somebody's got pictures that their kids drew of like, mommy makes, you know, mommy's going to Mars and stuff like yeah. that. And everybody's super excited. It's pretty good. Molex makes computer cables, right? So nobody's kids draw little pictures of off-white <laughs> computer cables, right? And, you know, I'm joking about this, but Molex is an incredibly well-run organization. You have to be if you're making great computer cables. And people are really motivated in terms of building human capital and and if and the reality is NASA and every hospital depend on really well-made, you know, electronic cables to work. Right. Yeah. Yes. So what they do is, in some sense, you know, the Lord's work. And and so if you think about if I'm Molex or if I'm less so if I'm NASA, but especially if I'm Molex and I walk in there as a woman, as a person of color, as a Somali immigrant, as a European transplant. And I look and I see anybody at level four and above the whole top of this group is white dudes who went to the Ivy League, right? Yeah. Or white dudes who went to the University of Illinois, which in yeah. some places can almost be worse, or the University of Michigan, all from the same school. And I don't fit that box. I'm going to start looking for my exit strategy mm. because I'm just going to think no one like me makes it here. It also is going to be the case that, you know, you almost can't help yourself. The norms, the behaviors, the things you do, what you think of as fun, Right. As an organization, those are all going to be defined by that central leadership group. Yeah. The power and those group. may not be inclusive. Yeah. So I was at an organization, you know, again, won't name it, where I was this was it was a, a diversity in a major city. And it was kind of like the diversity leadership, you know, in the business community, talking to this man who'd started this company that had grown 
you know, fairly large. 75% of his employees were women of color. And I said, wow. how are you doing? And he said, fantastic. And one of the things, he goes, we finally reached a threshold that I dreamed of when I started this company. And I said, what's that? He goes, we got a skybox for the hockey team, <laughs> the professional hockey team. Yeah. And I'm like, so the next day I sent him the demographics, like very few women of color watch hockey. <laughs> you know? right. um, no, it's like, right. so like, so I'm in a, I'm in a dream of being in the C-suite so I can go watch hockey, professional hockey games in a skybox. It's not a common dream. Yeah. No, it's not my dream. Right. And so, and so I think the thing is, is that, and he, and this was someone who is, you know, to use the American term at the moment, very woke, but yeah. at the same time, because, you know, his board approved that and, you know, I didn't see a picture of his board, but I didn't have to. Right. Right. If his board had had one secure, you know, one woman of color on the board who felt secure to say things would have been like just rolled her eyes and said hockey <laughs> you know, yeah. That, yeah. and would have killed it and, yeah, and you can see so, the case right there right then it, it's in power positions right top leadership boards yeah it's it, it, you need this cognitive diversity or this being mindful of the diversity bonuses and where they stem from right right the other thing and this is the case of you know so right you know Norway, right, and Sweden have moved towards certain percentages of women on boards and in political offices. Yes. And the legislatures have become far more effective. And at first, you can read that and say, wow, diversity bonuses. And there's a lot of evidence for that. But the other thing that there's evidence for is that, you know, they have these like you have these ranked lists. The guys they kicked off that list were the lowest performers. So if you go back to, you know, my belief is two, three things matter, right? Ability, diversity and like bringing it. You know, I mean, you just got to bring it. You got to care. You want to make the world better. You want to make your company better. Yeah, you gotta passion. Bring you got to yeah. bring that passion. And so what happens is, is like when you have to kick out, you know, the lower half of the men, you're going to kick out the ones that have less talent and have less passion. And then you're yeah. replacing them. I mean, so, you know, ironically, if you'd have just said in those countries, as a thought experiment, we're going to replace half the white men with other white men, you'd have done better. Mm. <laughs> right? yeah, just, yeah, yeah. It's not a good headline, though. It's a... Uh... Right. No, but but the thing is, is that you do get. Um, but but the other thing is like the I think that when you think about this notion of like how do you create inclusion, sometimes those processes have to change, and you get you get really idiosyncratic, strange things. So, for example, in the United States, our veterinary schools are now almost entirely women. It's like eighty, ninety percent women in vet schools. Okay. And the reason. Why is that? So women moved into veterinary medicine because it seemed like, okay, you know, I want to be in healthcare, but I don't want all this, you know, I want to maybe have a family. He seems more balanced than being a doctor, right? And you can take time off, Work-life right? Balance, yeah. And so 20 years ago, when you surveyed women about why they're going to veterinary school, they say, I'm going to go to vet school. And I'm going to open my own practice. I'm going to have flexible hours. I'm going to do this stuff. Yeah. If you interview them now, they don't say, I'm going to have my own office because all the offices are now they realize none of your own officers, women own sort of, you know, vet hospitals, they call it like animal hospitals where yeah. they have flexible hours. You can take time off. So all the things they wanted are now in place because now women are running, you know, the veterinary profession. And so the whole nature of the job has changed. It's no longer, a, you know, seven in the morning till six at night, six days a weekend on weekend. You know, it's, it's, it's right. a much yeah. more reasonable job. It's transformed. Yeah. Right. And then the same thing is you think, so then it's weird, like you have, you know, um, 
So you have professions that require the same level of sort of technical expertise, some of which are 80% women and some of which are 15% women. And it's just, it's, at first you can be perplexed and then you realize it's not perplexing. It's because what is the nature of, what is the, what does the job look like? And so what's yeah. happened is like some jobs like computer programming, like one of my students who happens to be a guy went to a hackathon and he never went to one before. He goes, wow, I think I know why there's no women in computer science. And he's like, well, I said, why? And he goes, showering. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> you know, like he goes, I was just with 200 people who spent an entire weekend, you know, stayed awake for 36 hours on a weekend in a basement. <laughs> there, there you go. Well, Scott, that I, sounds I, gendered, I, but the point is, is it is, it is, you know, it's, it's not even, there's a whole set of, you know, that's, that's a thing that there is a gendered correlation with. It's probably cultural. Right. But, um, the behavior know, stemming from these kind of, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, Scott, Scott, I'm mindful of the time. And yeah. um, I want to wrap up the podcast today um, with kind of one, one last uh, point from you. And that is we, we find ourselves here in Denmark that is a uh, monoculture that doesn't have a history of diversity like they, they do in some other um, countries. And what, what would you say to our Danish audience to if you were going to distill down the case for diversity in one minute? So, you know, based this a little bit on what I've um, experienced in Sweden, I said, I think one thing that works to the Danes' advantage is that people from Denmark do travel a lot. They're, it's a cosmopolitan, you know, Copenhagen in particular is a very cosmopolitan city. And so you are almost, you know, since it's free riding and all the diversity that you're experiencing from people coming in. But I think there's some particular things you can do that are really worthwhile. So one is thinking about, like, if you're large enough to have a board, thinking about having someone from another country on your board. Um, I know some Swedish companies have put, you know, people with design experience from from Italy, people with finance experience from Switzerland. I'm like, wow, that seems stereotypical. Like, hey, you know, <laughs> that's just what we're doing. Um, no, but, you know, reach into other countries where they have particular expertise that you think might be useful, right? Um, I think the second thing is, think about, you know, are you finding partnerships and alliances, particularly in the East, you know, the Far East and then, you know, South America, Africa, which are three big, um, you know, growth regions. Do you just have an awareness of potential markets there um, that are, you know, really, really worthwhile? And I think the other thing is, is that it is worth, you know, sending your employees out to um, to travel, right, and see other places. I think Singapore has done a spectacular job of this, of sort of, you know, sort of visiting diversity in a way. And then the last thing I'd recommend is like, you know, bringing people in, even, um, you know, at the intern level from other countries, because you build those alliances and those are people who, whose knowledge bases you can tap into later. And then I guess the, the very last thing I would think about, and this gets to the educational diversity, is yes. that around the world, there's technical expertise being developed in areas that might be germane to what you're doing. And if no one, and if the, it just happens to not be being taught in Denmark, and you take the lead on that, you're going to win big. Let me give it just a super specific geeky example, but I sure. hope it'll resonate. 20 years ago, um, spatial statistics was just sort of emerging as a field, you know, where you take into account like sort of the geographic location of where the signals coming, data is coming from. At that same time, computer power was at the point where almost every cash register receipt, right, had 
a geocode to it. So you knew where things were being bought. Companies that bought spatial statistics, like Carnegie Mellon, Berkeley, Colorado, I think Michigan, were training students in spatial statistics. Companies that hired people with spatial statistics just got a huge bonus for a long period of time over their competitors because they just knew a whole dimension to their data that other people didn't know. That same logic holds for you know, techniques being used in biochemistry, mm-hmm. machine learning techniques, you know, ways of um, teaching, you know, technology. So, you know, just being aware of, you know, really keeping your eyes open to how are people training people around the globe and are there skills and knowledge bases that like none of our competitor, you know, that, that you yeah. can sort of get that first step on. Because I think the real cognitive diversity bonuses, you know, come from perspectives, different ways of seeing things and tools. And so if you can hire people with perspective and tools that other people don't have, you're going to be able to, you know, fulfill whatever your mission is a lot better than other people. And then, and then very last thing is if you move into a market, and this is where I think ABI has been spectacular, you want to have people who understand that market. And let me give an anecdote on that to kind of close this down. Sure. To prevent this better COVID, one of the things that everybody talks about doing is contact tracing, right? Like have phones where you know everybody who everybody's been in contact. Well, at this particular moment in the United States, within African-American communities, I think expecting um, those communities to give the police all their contacts <laughs> is not going to happen, right? Right. And so you've got public health people talking about contact tracing who have fancy degrees from all the right schools, but they don't quite realize that in certain communities that may not be a viable strategy yes. to electronically trace people. And so I think, again, understanding local communities is going to require not only representation, but sort of validated and secure and engaged representation from the communities you want to serve. I really think there's been a lot of excellent points here, and I think we could probably go on all day. But um, I really appreciate you taking the time to call in today. Oh, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I have to say on behalf of everyone in America, you have the best airport in the world. <laughs> All right, our friends at Copenhagen Airport will appreciate that. Scott, it's a it's a true pleasure, and um, let's keep in touch. Thank Check you again. so much. Okay. And and to our audience, don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate, review, and until next time, see you on the JDP. Are you getting the most out of your time in Denmark? Pick up the printed copy of the English language newspaper Copenhagen Post today to access relevant news and event information guaranteed to enhance your working and family life.